Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 197. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is a big fine and big dandy. Today is Sail Day, launch of the three-day sail on Starship Sova, but I'll get into that in a second. I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. Then we have the main fiction, which is part two of Rachel Swarsky's The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. And it is also narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Like I said, we have a little glut on Amy, which is not a bad thing. So that is today's show. Before we get in though, yes it is, Sail Day. Today is the launch of Starship Sova's three-day sale. If you want to take any part of those videos, those fi- those videos which is the narrator's video, the writer's video and the TV and film script video, please pop along and go on this onto the, the front of the home page and there is the link, click on that and that will take you there. 50% for the videos off and 30% for all Starship Sova books. So please, it's on for three days. It's on for Wednesday, the 13th, 14th and the 15th. And then that's it. Prices go back to normal. So please do participate in in that sale. And I just want to big hats off to Mr. Josh, our man of the, the moment. Josh, who kind of looks after everything on Starship, the engine. Now... Probably a lot of you don't realize, you know, they come to the site or, you know, you just kind of get the feed, you get the show through the feed and you don't really come to the site. Well, for a few days now, we have been, ooh, the the, the good girl Starship Sova's ass has been dragging. You know, our servers have been very slow over there at Bluehost. It's been shockingly slow, to be quite honest. And I think a couple of times there was just non-existence. You couldn't actually get into the site. So now, though, we have moved, we have left Bluehost, who is a big company in America, and we are now having gently parked her fine ass on Josh's servers. Yes, so we're now sitting on Josh's servers. So everything now is now zippity fast over there at the website. So Josh, a big thank you to that for stepping in. And, and you wouldn't probably leave all the hassle Josh has had to do to kind of get it all over on, you know, because she is a big girl and there's all sorts, and there's a sanatorium and there's all sorts of little things clamped on the starships over. So just, Josh has had kind of all that to kind of take care of and get it ready, and get the seal page ready. You know what I mean? Because I keep on harping on about that to him as well. So, big thank you, Josh. Honestly, you stepped in there. What a, what a gentleman. What a star. So there you go. Two, two bits of great news. Seal's on, and Josh, what a hero. Let's kick in with Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me for another look back into genre history. As you may recall, in my last segment, I looked particularly at the essay In Defense of Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft, published in 1921. Today, I'd like to offer the second part of the two-part look at Lovecraft's nonfiction by looking at his supernatural horror in literature, which was published in 1927 and revised in 1933 and 1934, and his essays Some Notes on Interplanetary Fiction from 1935 and Notes on Writing Weird Fiction in 1937. Lovecraft's single most important literary essay followed six years after In Defense of Dagon. Supernatural Horror in Literature was first published in The Recluse in 1927 and later revised in 33 and 34 and serialized in Fantasy Fan from 1933 to 1935. By the time of its original publication, Lovecraft had several professional fiction publications to his credit. He'd even turned down the editorship of Weird Tales. This essay was an ambitious undertaking for Lovecraft, the result of years of systematic reading and analysis. It remains today one of the most comprehensive and insightful surveys of the historical development of the horror tale. In it, Lovecraft traced weird fiction from the ancient Egyptian and Semitic tales through the centuries to the contemporary authors he considered to be modern masters, namely Arthur Mackin, Algernon Blackwood, Lord Dunsany, and M.R. James. Not only did the essay establish Lovecraft as an authority in the field, but the study also served as a catalyst for his own fiction. Within a year of completing the main body of the essay, he'd penned such notable works as The Call of Cthulhu, Pickman's Model, The Silver Key, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and The Color Out of Space. So you could say it sort of lit a fire under him. Beyond its historical survey, the essay provides several useful windows into Lovecraft's own art. First, Lovecraft defines the weird tale, another term for imaginative fiction. His definition directly builds upon ideas he articulated in In Defense of Dagon, specifically that imaginative fiction creates a certain mood or atmosphere and it allows the reader to transcend the laws of nature that constrain us in our everyday lives. This escape from the scientific laws that govern our existence is liberating, in a sense, Lovecraft implies, but it is far more horrifying because it invites the unknown, the oldest and most lasting source of human fear. I quote, the true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form clanking chains, according to rule. A certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces must be present, and there must be a hint expressed with the seriousness and portentousness becoming its subject of that most terrible concept of the human brain— a malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. 
End quote. The Call of Cthulhu, first published in the February 1928 issue of Weird Tales, exemplifies these traits. As the narrator recounts the steps he followed to piece together bizarre evidence left by his late granduncle and uncovered by his own investigations, the tension in the atmosphere builds. The reader wonders how a hideous bas-relief sculpted in a troubled artist's sleep, a degenerate cult in the Louisiana Bayou, and the tragic fate of a ship in the Pacific Ocean could be connected. The accumulated clues point to an ancient extraterrestrial entity who waits beneath the sea to rise up and vanquish mankind. These discoveries generate more questions than answers, however, while suggesting that we are not capable of accepting the revelation in its entirety. The opening lines of the story set the tone for the horror to come. Quote, the sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But some day, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. End quote. The cosmic outlook apparent in The Call of Cthulhu and in Lovecraft's very definition of the weird tale is one of the features Lovecraft traces throughout the historical development of the genre in his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature. S.T. Joshi has pointed out in the introduction to the 2000 um, annotated version of this essay that it's another useful insight the essay offers because it shows how Lovecraft identified in the work of his predecessors the qualities that are found most clearly in his own fiction. Let me give you an example. Although the book predates many of the scientific discoveries that so captivated and convinced Lovecraft, he recognized that Charles Robert Maturin's 1820 Gothic classic Melmoth the Wanderer was an early and key iteration of the cosmic idea. Melmoth the Wanderer tells the tale of a man who has sold his soul for an additional 150 years of life, and now searches for another to take over the compact in his place. Lovecraft sees in this work, despite its frequent rambling and a sometimes clumsiness of prose, quote, a kinship to the essential truth of human nature, an understanding of the profoundest sources of actual cosmic fear, and a white heat of sympathetic passion on the writer's part, which makes the book a true document of aesthetic self-expression. Lovecraft sought to cultivate these things, especially an understanding of the profoundest sources of actual cosmic fear in his own art. Beyond the essay's historical survey of the genre, definition of the weird tale, and identification of Lovecraft's literary traits in his predecessors, supernatural horror in literature also allows readers to discover possible direct inspirations for specific stories Lovecraft wrote. For example, in the essay Lovecraft shows familiarity with and appreciation for Herman S. Gorman's novel The Place Called Dagon from 1927. Lovecraft describes the book as relating, quote, 
the dark history of a western Massachusetts backwater where the descendants of refugees from the Salem witchcraft still keep alive the morbid and degenerate horrors of the Black Sabbath. It seems very likely that this work influenced several of Lovecraft's stories, most notably The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which was first published in book form in 1936, which relates the dark history of a decaying New England coastal town where the degenerate descendants still keep alive the morbid horrors of the esoteric order of, what? Dagon cult. In both works, the protagonist learns much of the secret history of the locals from the recollections of seedy alcoholics who dwell on the many horrors they've seen. In this and other cases, then, supernatural horror in literature explores works that may have served as ancestor texts for Lovecraft's own creations. Even as Lovecraft proves exceptionally knowledgeable about the historical context of individual writings and the development of the genre as a whole over time, he also asserts the timelessness of weird or imaginative fiction as a whole. He claims that the fear of the unknown and the appeal of the fear of the unknown is part of human nature. He therefore thought that the work he loved, and maybe even the fiction he hoped to contribute, would have a long shelf life, indeed. I quote, When to this sense of fear and evil the inevitable fascination of wonder and curiosity is superadded, there is born a composite body of keen emotion and imaginative provocation whose vitality must of necessity endure as long as the human race itself. Children will always be afraid of the dark, and men with minds sensitive to hereditary impulse will always tremble at the thought of the hidden and fathomless worlds of strange life, which may pulsate in the gulfs beyond the stars, or press hideously upon our own globe in unholy dimensions, which only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, a couple of quick notes on some thoughts on interplanetary fiction from 1935 and notes on writing weird fiction from 1937. Two of the last variations on this theme that Lovecraft wrote were these two essays. Uh, the former, Some Notes on Interplanetary Fiction, uh, was first published in the winter 1935 issue of The Californian, and Notes on Writing Weird Fiction was published posthumously in the May-June 1937 issue of Amateur Correspondent. Both revisit In Defense of Dagon by emphasizing that the goal of imaginative fiction is the evocation of a feeling in the reader, a, a sense of mood. Uh, to use his words from some notes on interplanetary fiction, quote, all that a Marvel story can ever be in a serious way is a vivid picture of a certain kind of human mood, end quote. In these essays, Lovecraft not only reiterates previous points he made in past essays, but he also shares additional thoughts on the genre, which in turn shed light on his own writing. For example, in Notes on Writing Weird Fiction, he suggests that, along with the unnatural and barren immensity he describes in In Defense of Dagon, another aspect of horror is time. 
Quote, the reason why time plays a great part in so many of my tales is that this element looms up in my mind as the most profoundly dramatic and grimly terrible thing in the universe. Conflict with time seems to me the most potent and fruitful theme in all human expression. End quote. One thinks immediately of Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time, which was first published in the June 1936 issue of Astounding Stories. This tale follows a protagonist who is possessed by a Yithian, an alien who studies various times and locations by taking over the bodies of creatures who live in different periods and places. Because of the mind exchange the narrator experiences, he dreams of the ancient past and fears for his sanity. Lovecraft leaves the reader with a chilling revelation, underscoring the terror of time. And I quote from the story, No eye had seen, no hand had touched that book since the advent of man to this planet. And yet, when I flashed my torch upon it in that frightful abyss, I saw that the queerly pigmented letters on the brittle, eon-brown cellulose pages were not, indeed, any nameless hieroglyphs of Earth's youth. They were, instead, the letters of our familiar alphabet, spelling out the words of the English language in my own handwriting. Lovecraft further discusses how the central mood of the weird tale, whether built upon the unnatural, barren immensity, time, or any other ingredient, can best be achieved. In Notes on Writing Weird Fiction, he advocates devoting steadily increasing attention on the fantastic element of the story. Quote, this marvel must be treated very impressively and deliberately with careful emotional buildup, else it will seem flat and unconvincing. End quote. The impossible, improbable, or inconceivable phenomena must not be treated as commonplace narrative of objective facts and conventional emotions, he argues. I should point out that this perspective conflicts with the advice of John W. Campbell, Jr., the influential editor of Astounding Science Fiction from 1937 to 1971, who's often credited for ushering in the golden age of science fiction. Campbell urged his writers to treat with a certain nonchalance things that were amazing, to make the extraordinary seem ordinary, even comfortable. As genre scholar Edward James explains in his 1994 book, Science Fiction in the 20th Century, Campbell sought, quote, stories of a future whose plausibility was established not only by some hard-headed extrapolation, but also by a carefully realized social and cultural context with a lived-in feel, end quote. Lovecraft, however, did not want his reader to grow complacent in the worlds he devised. He didn't want his readers to feel welcomed into his stories, but to run away from them screaming. But Lovecraft and Campbell did share common genre ground. In Notes on Writing Weird Fiction, Lovecraft again reveals how the imagination chafes against the rigid universal laws by which our material selves are constrained. Quote, I choose weird stories because they suit my inclination best, one of my strongest and most persistent wishes being to achieve, momentarily, the illusion of some strange suspension or violation of the galling limitations of time, space, and natural law, which forever imprison us and frustrate our curiosity." End quote. 
He's careful to note that he seeks the illusion of transcending the laws, which he often provides in his stories through extraterrestrial beings and their architecture and accessories, and not dismissal of the laws themselves. For example, in Haunter of the Dark, first published in the December 1937 issue of Weird Tales, the protagonist learns humans can traverse time and space by summoning the Haunter of the Dark using an alien artifact. This, this crystal is a technological apparatus. It represents knowledge at an awe-inspiring level, but it's not simple-minded magic or mere fantasy. It's just a higher level of technology. It's no surprise that Lovecraft then praises some of the best science fiction in some notes on interplanetary fiction, including things he calls semi-classics like The War of the Worlds, Last and First Men, Station X, The Red Brain, and Clark Ashton Smith's best work. As exemplifying, quote, great possibilities in the serious exploitation of the astronomical tale, end quote. Lovecraft was an author in the tradition of weird fiction, but he was also a pioneer of genre criticism and a genuine, dedicated fan. His defenses of his work didn't spring from pride or hubris, but rather a deep-seated desire that readers judge his work and the work of fellow imaginative fiction authors against the goals and purposes of the genre and not other unrelated criteria. His detailed explanations of his own methods came more from humility than pride, and always from a love of the literature and its corresponding ideas. This is clear in In Defense of Dagon, in which he writes, quote, What I have said of imaginative literature may help to explain what it is that I am feebly and unsuccessfully trying to do. I am a self-confessed amateur and bungler and have not much hope of improvement, but the visions clamor for expression and preservation, so what is one to do? Lovecraft had, if nothing else, the consolation of his conviction that the tradition in and about which he wrote was timeless. The creators of the imaginative tale and their audience might be small, but they always would be. As insignificant as Lovecraft believed himself to be in the cosmic scheme of things, he was not and never would be alone. To use his words in Notes on Writing Weird Fiction, quote, There will always be a certain small percentage of persons who feel a burning curiosity about unknown outer space and a burning desire to escape from the prison house of the known and the real into those enchanted lands of incredible adventure and infinite possibilities which dreams open up to us, and which things like deep woods, fantastic urban towers, and flaming sunsets suggest. Quote. And it is to that certain small percentage of persons, in short, to us, dear listeners, that Lovecraft continues to speak today. As always, I hope you've enjoyed our look back into genre history, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. And there you go. And we're just about again to listen to Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, we have part two of Rachel Swarsky's The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. 
as I say, it is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window by Rachel Swarsey, Part 2. In Part 1 of The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window, the lady was unfairly suspected of treason, killed by order of her love, Queen Rena, and her soul bound for service. But this sorceress returns to back the usurper, Queen Reina's daughter Trice, who murders her mother to become queen herself. And now, part two of The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window. Trice consulted me often during the early years of her reign. I familiarized myself with the blur of the paintings in her chamber, squinting to pick out placid scenes of songbirds settling on snowy branches, bathing in mountain springs, soaring through sun-struck skies. "'Don't you have counselors for this?' I snapped one day. Trice halted her pacing in front of me, blocking my view of a wren painted by the artist without pity. "'Do you understand what it's like for me?' The court still calls me the imprudent child who would be queen because of you. Gudrun went to comfort her. She kept the creature close, pampered and petted like a cat on a leash. She rested her head on his shoulder as he stroked her arms. It all looked too easy, too familiar. I wondered how often Trice spun herself into these emotional whirlpools. It can be difficult for women to accept orders from their juniors, I said. I've borne two healthy girls, Trice said petulantly. When I talk to the other women about bearing, they still say they can't, that women's bodies aren't suited for childbirth. Well, if women can't have children, then what does that make me? I forbore responding. They keep me busy with petty disputes over grazing rights and grain allotment, how can I plan for a war when they distract me with pedantry? The raiders are still at our heels, and the daft old biddies won't accept what we must do to beat them back. The automaton thrummed with sympathy. Trice shook him away and resumed pacing. At least I have you, respected aunt. For now, you must be running out of hosts. I raised my hand and inspected young, unfamiliar fingers. Dirt crusted the ragged nails. Who is this? Anyone I know? The death whisperers refuse to let me use their bodies. What time is this when dying old women won't blow out a few days early for the good of the land? Who is this? I repeated. I had to summon you into the body of a common thief. You see how bad things are. What did you expect? That the wind would send a hundred songbirds to trill praises at your coronation? That sugared oranges would rain from the sky and flowers bloom on winter stalks? Trice glared at me angrily. Do not speak to me like that. I may be an imprudent child, but I am the queen. She took a moment to regain her composure. Enough chatter. Give me the spell I asked for. Trice called me in at official occasions to bear witness from the body of a disfavored servant or a used-up brood. I attended each of the four ceremonies where Trice, clad in regal blue, presented her infant daughters to the sun. Four small, green-swathed bundles, each born from the queen's own body. 
It made me sick, but I held my silence. She also summoned me to the court ceremony where she presented Gudrun with an official title she'd concocted to give him standing in the royal circle. Honored Zephyr, or some such nonsense. They held the occasion in autumn when red and yellow leaves adorned Gudrun's shoulders like a cape. Trice pretended to ignore the women's discontented mutterings, but they were growing louder. The last time I saw Trice, she summoned me in a panic. She stood in an unfamiliar room with bare stone walls and sharp wind creaking through slitted windows. Someone else's blood stained Trice's robes. My sisters betrayed me, she said. They told the women of the grasslands I was trying to make them into broods, and then led them in a revolt against the castle. A thousand women marching. I had to slay them all. I suspected Darnisha all along, but Penny seemed content to waft. Last fall she bore a child of her own body. It was a worm, true, but she might have gotten a daughter next. She said she wanted to try. Is that their blood? She held out her reddened hands and stared at them ruefully, as if they weren't really part of her. Gudrun was helping them. I had to smash him into sticks. They must have cast a spell on him. I can't imagine. Her voice faltered. I gave her a moment to tame her undignified excess. You seem to have mastered the situation, I said. A queen must deal with such things from time to time. The important thing will be to show no weakness in front of your courtiers. You don't understand. It's much worse than that. While we women fought, the raiders attacked the fields that bask under open skies. They've taken half the land. We're making a stand in the castle where hope flutters, but we can't keep them out forever. A few weeks at most. I told them this would happen. We need more daughters to defend us, but they wouldn't listen to me. Reyna would have known how to present her anger with queenly courage, but Trice was rash and thoughtless. She wore her emotions like perfume. Be calm, I admonished. You must focus. The raiders sent a message describing what they'll do to me and my daughters when they take the castle. I captured the messenger and burned out his tongue and gave him to the broods, and when they were done with him, I took what was left of his body and catapulted it into the raiders' camp. I could do the same to every one of them, and it still wouldn't be enough to compensate for having to listen to their vile, cowardly threats. I interrupted her tirade. The castle where hope flutters is on high ground, but if you've already lost the eastern fields, it will be difficult to defend. Take your women to the spires of treachery, where the herders feed their cattle. You won't be able to mount traditional defenses, but they won't be able to attack easily. You'll be reduced to meeting each other in small parties, where women's magic should give you the advantage. My commander suggested that, said Trice. There are too many of them. We might as well try to dam a river with silk. It's better than remaining here. Even if we fight to a stalemate in the spires of treachery, the raiders will have our fields to grow food in and our broods to make children on. If they can't conquer us this year, they'll obliterate us in ten. I need something else. There is nothing else. Think of something. I thought. 
I cast my mind back through my years of training. I remembered the locked room in my matriline's household, where servants were never allowed to enter, which my cousins and I scrubbed every dawn and dusk to teach us to be constant and rigorous. I remembered the cedar desk where my aunt Finnis taught me to paint birds, first by using the most realistic detail that oils could achieve, and then. By reducing my paintings to fewer and fewer brush strokes, until I could evoke the essence of bird without any brush at all, I remember the many-drawered red cabinets where we stored leaf spine and winterbrew, powdered arrow and essence of howl. I remember my bossy cousin Alni skidding through the halls in a panic after she broke into a locked drawer and mixed together two herbs that weren't supposed to touch. Her fearful grimace transformed into a beak that permanently silenced her sharp tongue. I remembered the year I spent traveling to learn the magic of foreign lands. I was appalled by the rituals I encountered in places where women urinated on their thresholds to ward off spirits and plucked their scalps bald when their eldest daughters reached majority. I walked with cinders and weavers and whisperers and learned magic secrets that my people had misunderstood for centuries. I remember the terror of the three nights I spent in the ancient ruins of the desert, which should not have been, begging the souls that haunted that place to surrender the secrets of their accursed city. One by one, my companions died, and I spent the desert days digging graves for those the spirits found unworthy. On the third dawn, they blessed me with communion and sent me away a wiser woman. I remembered returning to the land of flowered hills and making my own contribution to the lore contained in our matriline's locked rooms. I remembered all of this, and still, I could think of nothing to tell Trice, until a robin of memory hopped from an unexpected place. A piece of magic I learned traveling with herders, not spellcasters. It was an old magic, one that farmers cast when they needed to cull an inbred strain. You must concoct a plague. I began. Trice's eyes locked on me. I saw hope in her face, and I realized that she'd expected me to fail her too. Find a sick baby and stop whatever treatment it is receiving. Feed it mosquito bellies and awful and dirty water to make it sicker. Give it sores and let them fill with pus. When its forehead has grown too hot for a woman to touch without flinching, kill the baby and dedicate its breath to the sun. The next morning, when the sun rises, a plague will spread with the sunlight. That will kill the raiders, many of them. If you create a truly virulent strain, it may kill most of them. And it will cut down their children like a scythe across wheat. Trice clapped her blood-stained hands. Good. I should warn you; it will kill your babies as well. What? A plague cooked in an infant will kill anyone's children. It is the way of things. Unacceptable. I come to you for help, and you send me to murder my daughters. You killed one before, didn't you? To save your automaton. You're as crazy as the crones at court. We need more babies, not fewer. You'll have to hope you can persuade your women to bear children, so that you can rebuild your population faster than the raiders can rebuild theirs. Trice looked as though she wanted to level a thousand curses at me, 
but she stilled her tongue. Her eyes were dark and narrow. In a quiet, angry voice, she said, Then it will be done. They were the same words she'd used when she promised to kill Gudrun. That time I'd been able to save her, despite her foolishness. This time I might not be able to. Next time I was summoned, I could not see at all. I was ushered into the world by lowing, distant shouts and the stench of animals packed too closely together. A worried voice cut through the din. Did it work? Are you there? Laverna, is that still you? Disoriented, I reached out to find a hint about my surroundings. My hands impacted a summoning barrier. Laverna, that's not you anymore, is it? The smell of manure stung my throat. I coughed. <laughs> my name is Neva. Holy day it worked. Please, sleepless one, we need your help. There are men outside. I don't know how long we can hold them off. What happened? Is Queen Trice dead? Queen Trice. She didn't cast the plague, did she? Selfish brat. Where are the raiders now? Are you in the spires of treachery? Sleepless one, slow down. I don't follow you. Where are you? How much land have the raiders taken? There are no raiders here, just King Adric's army. His soldiers used to be happy as long as we paid our taxes and bowed our heads at processions. Now they want us to follow their ways, worship their god, let our men give us orders. Some of us rebelled by marching in front of the governor's theater, and now he sent sorcerers after us. They burned our city with magical fire. We're making a last stand at the inn outside town. We set aside the stable for the summoning. Woman? You're mad. Men can't practice that kind of magic. These men can. A nearby donkey brayed and a fresh stench plopped into the air. Outside, I heard the noise of burning and the shouts of men and children. It seems we've reached an impasse. You've never heard of the land of flowered hills? Never. I had spent enough time pacing the ruins in the desert which should not have been to understand the ways in which civilizations cracked and decayed. Women and time marched forward, relentless and uncaring as sand. I see. I'm sorry, I'm not doing this very well. It's my first summoning. My Aunt Hetta used to do it, but they slit her throat like you'd slaughter a pig and left her body to burn. Bardas says they're roasting the corpses and eating them, but I don't think anyone could do that, could they? Hetta showed me how to do this a dozen times, but I never got to practice. She would have done this better. That would explain why I can't see. No, that's the child, Laverna. She's blind. She does all the talking. Her twin, Nami, can see, but she's dumb. Her twin? Nami's right here. Reach into the circle and touch your sister's hand, Nami. That's a good girl. A small hand clasped mine. It felt clammy with sweat. I squeezed back. It doesn't seem fair to take her sister away, I said. Why would anyone take Laverna away? She'll die when I leave this body. No, she won't. Nami's soul will call her back. Didn't your people use twins? No. Our hosts died. Yours were a harsh people. Another silence. She spoke the truth, though I'd never thought of it in such terms. We were a lawful people. We were an unflinching people. 
You want my help to defeat the shamans? I asked. Aunt Hedda said that sometimes the sleepless ones can blink and douse all the magic within seven leagues, or wave their hands and sweep a rank of men into a hurricane. Well, I can't. She fell silent. I considered her situation. Do you have your people's livestock with you? I asked. Everything that wouldn't fit into the stable is packed inside the inn. It's even less pleasant in there, if you can imagine. Can you catch one of their soldiers? We took some prisoners when we fled. We had to kill one, but the others are tied up in the courtyard. Good. Kill them and mix their blood into the grain from your larder and bake it into loaves of bread. Feed some of the bread to each of your animals. They will fill with a warrior's anger and hunt down your enemies. The woman hesitated. I could hear her feet shifting on the hay-covered floor. If we do that, we won't have any grain or animals. How will we survive? You would have had to desert your larder when the worm pretending to be queen sent reinforcements anyway. When you can safely flee, ask the blind child to lead you to the place where the sun is joyous. Whichever direction she chooses will be your safest choice. Thank you," said the woman. Her voice was taut and tired. It seemed clear that she'd hoped for an easier way, but she was wise enough to take what she received. We'll have a wild path to tame. Yes. The woman stepped forward. Her footsteps released the scent of dried hay. You didn't know about your land, did you? I did not. I'm sorry for your loss. It must be. The dumb child whimpered. Outside, the shouts increased. I need to go," said the woman. "Good luck," I said, and meant it. I felt the child Laverna rush past me as I sank back into my restless sleep. Her spirit flashed as brightly as a coin left in the sun. I never saw that woman or any of her people again. I like to think they did not die. I did not like the way the world changed after the land of flowered hills disappeared. For a long time, I was summoned only by men. Most were sallow, unhealthy color with sharp, narrow features and unnaturally light hair. Goateed sorcerers, too proud of their paltry talents, strove to dazzle me with pyrotechnics. They commanded me to reveal magical secrets that their people had forgotten. Sometimes I stayed silent. Sometimes I led them astray. Once, a hunched barbarian with a braided beard ordered me to give him the secret of flight. I told him to turn toward the prevailing wind and beg the lover of the sky for a favor. When the rooks swooped down to eat him, I felt a wild kind of joy. At least the birds remembered how to punish worms who would steal women's magic. I suffered for my minor victory. Without the barbarian to dismiss me, I was stuck on a tiny patch of grass, hemmed in by the rabbit heads he'd placed to mark the summoning circle. I shivered through the windy night until I finally thought to kick away one of the heads. It tumbled across the grass, and my spirit sank into the ground. Men treated me differently than women had. I had been accustomed to being summoned by queens and commanders, awaiting my advice on incipient battles. Men eschewed my consult; they sought to steal my powers. 
One summoned me into a box, hoping to trap me as if I were a minor demon that could be forced to grant his wishes. I chanted a rhyme to burn his fingers. When he pulled his hand away, the lid snapped shut, and I was free. Our magic had centered on birds and wind. These new sorcerers made pets of creatures of blood and snapping jaws, wolves and bears and jaguars. We had depicted the sun's grace along with its splendor, showing the red feathers of flaming light that arc into wings to sweep her across the sky. Their sun was a crude, jagged thing, a golden disk surrounded by spikes that twisted like the gaudy knives I'd seen in foreign cities where I traveled when I was young. They called me the Bitch Queen. They claimed I had hated my womb so much that I tried to curse all men to infertility, but the curse rebounded and struck me dead. Apparently, I had hanged myself, or I'd tried to disembowel every male creature within a day's walk of my borders, or I'd spelled my entire kingdom into a waking death in order to prevent myself from ever becoming pregnant. Apparently, I did all the same things out of revenge because I became pregnant. I eschewed men and impregnated women with sorcery. I married a thousand husbands and murdered them all. I murdered my husband, the king, and staked his head outside my castle, and then forced all the tearful women of my kingdom to do the same to their menfolk. I went crazy when my husband and son died, and ordered all the men in my kingdom to be executed, declaring that no one would have the pleasure I'd been denied. I had been born a boy. But a rival of my father's castrated me, and so I hated all real men. I ordered that any woman caught breastfeeding should have her breasts cut off. I ordered my lover's genitals cut off and sewn on me. I ordered my vagina sewn shut so I could never give birth. I ordered everyone in my kingdom to call me a man. They assumed my magic must originate with my genitals. They displayed surprise that I didn't strip naked to mix ingredients in my vagina or cast spells using menstrual blood. They also displayed surprise that I became angry when they asked me about such things. The worst of them believed he could steal my magic by raping me. He summoned me into a worthless, skinny girl, the kind that we in the land of flowered hills would have deemed too weak to be a woman and too frail to be a brood. In order to carry out his plans, he had to make the summoning circle large enough to accommodate the bed. When he forced himself on top of me, I twisted off his head. The best of them summoned me soon after that. It was a young man with nervous, trembling fingers who innovated a way to summon my spirit into himself. Books and scrolls tumbled over the surfaces of his tiny, dim room. Many of them stained with wax from unheeded candles. Talking to him was strange. The two of us communicating with the same mouth, looking out of the same eyes. Before long, we realized that we didn't need words. Our knowledge seeped from one spirit to the other like dye poured into water. He watched me as a girl riding with Reina, and felt the sun burning my back as I dug graves in the desert which should not have been, and flinched as he witnessed the worm who attempted to rape me. I watched him and his five brothers, all orphaned and living on the street, as they struggled to find scraps. I saw how he had learned to read under the tutelage of a traveling scribe who carried his books with him from town to town. 
I felt his uncomfortable mixture of love, respect, and fear for the patron who had set him up as a scribe and petty magician in return for sex and servitude. I didn't know it felt that way, I said to him. Neither did I, he replied. We stared at each other, cross-eyed, through his big green eyes. Pasha needed to find a way to stop the nearby volcano before it destroyed the tiny kingdom where he dwelled. Already, tremors rattled the buildings, foreshadowing the coming destruction. Perhaps I should not have given Pasha the spell, but it was not deep woman's magic. Besides, things seemed different when I inhabited his mind, closer to him than I had been to anyone. We went about enacting the spell together. As we collected ash from the fireplaces of one family from each of the kingdom's twelve towns, I asked him, Why haven't you sent me back? Wouldn't it be easier to do this on your own? I'll die when your spirit goes, he answered, and I saw the knowledge of it which he had managed to keep from me. I didn't want him to die. Then I'll stay, I said. I won't interfere with your life. I'll retreat as much as I can. I can't keep up the spell much longer, he said. I felt his sadness and his resolve. Beneath, I glimpsed even deeper sadness at the plans he would no longer be able to fulfill. He'd wanted to teach his youngest brother to read and write so that the two of them could move out of this hamlet and set up shop in a city of scribes, perhaps even earn enough money to house and feed all their brothers. I remembered Laverna and Nami and tried to convince Pasha that we could convert the twins' magic to work for him and his brother. He said that we only had enough time to stop the volcano. The kingdom is more important than I am, he said. We dug a hole near the volcano's base and poured in the ashes that we'd collected. We stirred them with a phoenix feather until they caught fire in order to give the volcano the symbolic satisfaction of burning the kingdom's hearths. A dense cloud of smoke rushed up from the looming mountain, and then the earth was still. That's it, said Pasha, exhaustion and relief equally apparent in his mind. We did it. We sat together until nightfall, when Pasha's strength began to fail. I have to let go now, he said. No, I begged him. Wait. Let us return to the city. We can find your brother. We'll find a way to save you. But the magic in his brain was unwinding. I was reminded of the ancient tapestries hanging in the castle where hope flutters, left too long to moths and weather. Pasha lost control of his feet, his fingers, his thoughts began to drift. They came slowly and far apart. His breath halted in his lungs. Before his life could end completely, my spirit sank away, leaving him to die alone. After that, I did not have the courage to answer summons. When men called me, I kicked away the objects they'd used to bind me in place and disappeared again. Eventually, the summons stopped. I had never before been aware of the time that I spent under the earth, but as the years between summons stretched, I began to feel vague sensations, swatches of gray and white, along with muted, indefinable pain. When a summons finally came, I almost felt relief.
When I realized the summoner was a woman, I did feel surprise. I didn't expect that to work," said the woman. She was peach-skinned and round, a double chin gentling her jaw. She wore large spectacles with faceted green lenses like insect eyes. Spines like porcupine quills grew in a thin line from the bridge of her nose to the top of her skull before fanning into a mane. The aroma of smoke, whether the woman's personal scent or some spell remnant, hung acrid in the air. I found myself simultaneously drawn to the vibrancy of the living world, and disinclined to participate in it. I remained still, delighting in the smells and sights and sounds. No use pretending you're not there," said the woman. "The straw man doesn't usually blink on its own or breathe." I looked down and saw a rudimentary body made of straw, joints knotted together with what appeared to be twine. I lifted my straw hand and stretched out each finger, amazed as the joints crinkled but did not break. What is this? My voice sounded dry and crackling, though I did not know whether that was a function of straw or disuse. I'm not surprised this is new to you. The straw men are a pretty new development. It saves a lot of stress and unpleasantness for the twins. And the spirit rebounders, and everyone else who gets the thankless job of putting up with insomniacs taking over their bodies, Olin Nimble—that's the man who innovated the straw men. He and I completed our scholastic training the same year. Twenty years later, he's transfigured the whole field, and here's me puttering around the library. But I suppose someone has to teach the students how to distinguish pinder's breath from summer two-flower. The woman reached into my summoning circle and tugged my earlobe. Straw crackled. "It's a gesture of greeting," she says. "Go on, tug mine." I reached out hesitantly, expecting my gesture to be thwarted by the invisible summoning barrier. Instead, my fingers slid through unresisting air and grasped the woman's earlobe. She grinned with an air of satisfaction that reminded me of the way my aunts had looked when showing me new spells. I am Scholar Misa Meticulous. She lifted the crystal globe she carried and squinted at it. Magical etchings appeared, spelling words in an unfamiliar alphabet. And you are the great lady Neva who picked posies near the queen's chamber of the kingdom where women rule. I frowned or tried to, unsure whether it showed on my straw face. The land of flowered hills. Oh. She corrected the etching with a long, sharp implement. Our earliest records have it the other way. This sort of thing is commoner than you'd think. Facts get mixed with rumor. Rumor becomes legend. Soon, no one can remember what was history and what they made up to frighten the children. For instance, I'll bet your people didn't really have an underclass of women you kept in herds for bearing children. We called them broods. You called them. Misa's eyes went round and horrified. As quickly as her shock had registered, it disappeared again. She snorted with forthright amusement. "We'll have to get one of the historians to talk to you. This is what they live for, do they?" It was becoming increasingly clear that this woman viewed me as a relic. Indignation simmered. I was not an urn, half buried in the desert, yet. In a way, I was. 
I'm just a teacher who specializes in sniffing, Misa continued. I find insomniacs we haven't spoken to before. It can take years tracking through records, piecing together bits of old spells. I've been following you for three years. You slept dark. Not dark enough. She reached into the summoning circle to give me a sympathetic pat on the shoulder. Eternity's a lonely place, she said. Even the Academy's lonely, and we only study Eternity. Come on, why don't we take a walk? I'll show you the library. My straw eyes rustled as they blinked in surprise. A walk? Misa laughed. <laughs> Try it out! <laughs> she laughed again as I took one precarious step forward and then another. The straw body's joints creaked with each stiff movement. I felt awkward and graceless, but I couldn't deny the pleasure of movement. Come on, Misa repeated, beckoning. She led me down a corridor of gleaming white marble. Arcane symbols figured the walls. Spell remnants scented the air with cinnamon and burnt herbs, mingling with the cool currents that swept down from the vaulted ceiling. Beneath our feet, the floor was worn from many footsteps, and yet Misa and I walked alone. I wondered how it could be that a place built to accommodate hundreds was empty, except for a low-ranking scholar and a dead woman summoned into an effigy. My questions were soon answered when a group of students approached noisily from an intersecting passageway. They halted when they saw us, falling abruptly silent. Misa frowned. Get on, she said, waving them away. They looked relieved as they fled back the way they'd come. The students' shaved heads and shapeless robes made it difficult to discern their forms, but it was clear I had seen something I hadn't been meant to. "'You train men here,' I ascertained. "'Men? Women? Neuters?' said Misa. "'Anyone who comes, and qualifies, of course.' I felt the hiss of disappointment, another profane, degraded culture— I should have known better than to hope. I see, I said, unable to conceal my resentment. Misa did not seem to notice. Many cultures have created separate systems of magic for the male and female. Your culture was extreme, but not unusual. Men work healing magic and women sing weather magic or vice versa. All very rigid, all very unscientific. Did they ever try to teach a man to wail for a midnight rain? Oh, maybe they did, but if he succeeded, then it was just that one man, and wasn't his spirit more womanly than masculine? They get noted as an exception to the rule, not a problem with the rule itself. Think locust follow with the crickets, or Petron Vatscheco, or, for an example on the female side, Queen Erte. And of course, if the man you set up to sing love songs to hurricanes can't even stir up a breeze, well, there's your proof. Men can't sing the weather, even if another man could. Rigor, that's the important thing. Until you have proof, anything can be wrong. We know now there's no difference between the magical capabilities of the sexes, but we'd have known it earlier if people had asked the right questions. Did you know there's a place in the northern wastes where they believe only people with both male and female genitals can work spells? They're fools. Misa shrugged. Everyone's a fool sooner or later. I make a game of it with my students. 
What do we believe that will be proven wrong in the future? I envy your ability to live forever, so you can see. You should not," I said, surprised by my own bitterness. People of the future are as likely to destroy your truths as to uncover your falsehoods. She turned toward me, her face drawn with empathy. You may be right. We entered a vast mahogany-paneled room, large enough to quarter a rook. Curving shelf towers formed an elaborate labyrinth. Misa led me through the narrow aisles with swift precision. The shelves displayed prisms of various shapes and sizes. Crystal pyramids sat beside metal cylinders and spheres cut from obsidian. There were stranger things too, shapes for which I possessed no words, woven out of steel threads or hardened lava. Overhead, a transparent dome revealed a night sky strewn with stars. I recognized no patterns among the sparkling pinpricks. It was as if all the stars I'd known had been gathered in a giant's palm and then scattered carelessly into new designs. Misa chattered as she walked. This is the Academy Library. There are over three hundred thousand spells in this wing alone, and we've almost filled the second. My students are taking bets on when they'll start construction on the third. They're also taking bets on whose statue will be by the door. Olin Nimble's the favorite, wouldn't you know? We passed a number of Carroll desks upon which lay maps of strange rivers and red-tinted deserts. Tubes containing more maps resided in cubby holes between the desks, their ends labeled in an unfamiliar alphabet. We make our first-year students memorize world maps," said Misa. "A scholar has to understand how much there is to know." I stopped by a carol near the end of the row. The map's surface was ridged to show changes in elevation. I tried to imagine what the land it depicted would look like from above on a rook's back. Could the mountains where the sun rests be hidden among those jagged points? Misa stopped behind me. We're almost to the place I wanted to show you," she said. When we began walking again, she stayed quiet. Presently, we approached a place where marble steps led down to a sunken area. We descended and seemed to enter another room entirely. The arcs of the library shelves on the main level looming upward like a ring of ancient trees. All around us, invisible from above, there stood statues of men and women. They held out spell spheres in their carved, upturned palms. This is the circle of insomniacs," said Nisa. "Every insomniac is depicted here. All the ones we found, that is, amid hunched old women and bearded men with wild eyes. I caught sight of stranger things. Long, armored spikes jutted from a woman's spine." A man seemed to be wearing a helmet shaped like a sheep's head, until I noticed that his ears twisted behind his head, and became the ram's horns. A child opened his mouth to display a ring of needle-sharp teeth like a leech's. They aren't human, I said. They are, said Misa, or they were. She pointed me to the space between a toothless man and a soldier, whose face fell in shadow behind a carved helmet. Your statue will be there. 
the sculptor will want to speak with you, or if you don't want to talk to him, you can talk to his assistant, and she'll make notes. I looked aghast at the crowd of stone faces. This, this is why you woke me, this sentimental memorial. Mises' eyes glittered with excitement. The statue's only part of it. We want to know more about you and the kingdom where women rule. Sorry, the land of flowered hills. We want to learn from you and teach you. We want you to stay. I could not help but laugh, harsh and mirthless. Would this woman ask a piece of ancient stone wall whether or not it wanted to be displayed in a museum? Not even the worms who tried to steal my spells had presumed so much. I'm sorry, said Misa. I shouldn't have blurted it out like that. I'm good at sniffing. I'm terrible with people. Usually I find the great ones, and then other people do the summoning and bring them to the library. The council asked me to do it myself this time because I lived in a women's colony before I came to the academy. I'm what they call woman-centered. They thought we'd have something in common. Loving women is fundamental. It's natural as breeze. It's not some kind of shared diversion. Still, it's more than you'd have in common with Olin Nimble. She paused, biting her lip. She was still transparently excited, even though the conversation had begun to go badly. Will you stay a while at least? she asked. You slept dark for millennia. What's a little time in the light? I scoffed and began to demand that she banish me back to the dark, but the scholar's excitement cast ripples in a pond that I'd believed had become permanently still. What I'd learned from the unrecognizable maps and scattered constellations was that the wage of eternity was forgetfulness. I was lonely, achingly lonely. Besides, I had begun to like Misa's fumbling chatter. She had reawakened me to light and touch, and even, it seemed, to wonder. The End of Part Two And there you go. That is the baby show. Yes, just a small one. You know, it's all getting things done and dusted now. You know, with this new job I've got, and apologies if it's a little bit short for you there. But we had I had some other things kind of lined up, but then I need them. I need. I had some bios for the short stories that I needed to get on there, and I didn't get them in time. So she's a little girl this week. But I do hope you do, you know, send Josh an email thanking them for that. And I hope you do pop over to the sale and get yourself some books and some videos, you know, well worth it. Well supporting Starship Sova. So that is, oh, and don't forget, time travel lecture if you want to do that as well. From the website, there is a link there. They're, they're going good. That's really, I'm looking forward to that. I spoke to Ted and we had a run through of kind of what Ted's going to be talking about as well. And I've done that with Amy as well, and it, like, we had a chat with Amy last week as well, so that's looking good. So, that is it. That is show 197. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do stick around, and I will see you next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? 
can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa. A battle